Hey y'all, two disclosures. I just got done listening to the audio and I'm really bad about it. I don't like to go back and edit what I've said. Um, probably one of the laziest podcasters of all time. Uh, just two quick anecdotes before you head in. Uh, first and foremost, anytime I describe like a client case, uh, I learned this a long time ago um, when I did volunteer work uh, at a sexual assault crisis center. Is uh, I know for me, the best way I learn is through examples. That's the best way I teach, too. Anytime you hear me use an example, it's not of a specific case unless that client gave me permission and is written permission, and I have it documented somewhere in a safeguarded place to use that specific example uh, in this podcast. And then, so if you ever hear me use a case example, it's usually a mixture of a whole bunch of different cases. Uh, or maybe a couple of details have been mixed matched and in order to protect the anonymity of the client and the situation. So that's one thing I did want to get out of the way. I didn't want people to think, golly, she's sharing everyone's business. That's not the situation. Second off, um, I, I eventually started explaining this at a certain pot point in time, like in the episode that I'm Please just going to reiterate it again for legal purposes before you even begin to jump into this episode. I am a therapist. I'm a QMHP in the state of Kentucky, a qualified mental health professional. I'm a therapist, but I'm probably not your therapist. Um, so with that being said, everything you're fixing to listen to you uh, in, in this following episode, please keep in mind, I'm not encouraging you to self-diagnose. None of those things. I am encouraging you to get yourself educated on this topic, though. So, cool. Enjoy. Howdy. This is Casey with the Kentucky Trauma Therapist. It's Friday the 13th, so that feels like a, you know, happy holiday. Let's get down to some business. I actually really want today's episode just to be on what is a PTSD diagnosis? Because I'm running into this issue where, okay, hold up. This issue has been pervasive for as long as I can remember. Um, let's see, any potential trigger warning or content warning. Uh, we're going to talk about what justifies a PTSD diagnosis and probably some examples. So uh, just keep that in mind. If that sounds like something that you're not in a place to maybe receive today, then maybe like today's not the best day to listen to this episode. But I think for the most part, it'll stay pretty, pretty clean uh, outside of my potty mouth. Um, Fun story about my potty mouth for two seconds. Uh, I was 13 years old, and my dad thought he was going to lose his job. It was right before my 13th birthday. My dad thought he was going to lose his job at the factory and because uh, they were letting go of a lot of folks, and there was someone who had more seniority than him by a month, and they were talking about letting him go. I remember he was panicking. He was really upset because he didn't know. He was a single dad. And I remember him asking me, you know, Casey LeRae, what do, what do you want for your birthday that I could probably afford with our current situation? And I was like, can I start cussing? And uh, so that's my 13th birthday present, and it's my favorite birthday present I've received of all time. Fun fact. Uh, so, <laughs> with that being said, uh, I want to go into explaining what in the hell is PTSD diagnosis? Where does it come from? Because a lot of people qualify for a PTSD diagnosis and seriously don't have a clue. 
that it's applicable, that it can apply to them, all of those things. So we're going to dive into that. Uh, I want to start by telling this story. I used to be an investigator for Child Protective Services in uh, Barron County, Kentucky, uh, Glasgow area, if anyone's familiar with that area. It's in between like Bowling Green and E-Town, Elizabethtown. Uh, so western, central-ish, southern-ish Kentucky. That is a lot of ishes. Um, and I had to ask people really nosy questions when I worked for Child Protective Services. I know it always made me uncomfortable because I was not used to being up in everyone's like private business. It just wasn't something I was taught to do. And I was having to ask this older gentleman, he was like a grandparent to a kid. Um, you know, you have to go through and ask like, do you have any physical health diagnosis? Uh, anytime they're involved in the case and they may potentially be a guardian for a kid who's being put into their care, you gotta ask a couple of nosy questions. And I was like, hey man, do you, do you have any physical health issues? He was like, no. I was like, okay. Any mental health issues? And he's like, uh, no. I was like, okay. I was like, well, what medications do you take? And he's like, uh, I, I take Zoloft, like 50 milligrams a day. For, for those of you who don't know, Zoloft is an SSRI medication uh, that people normally take to treat anxiety and depression or PTSD symptoms. And, and I just paused for a second. I was like, oh, well, what you taking the, the Zoloft for? And he's like, oh, I have a nerve problem. I have a problem with my nerves. And and ladies and gents and folks in between and non-binary, uh, that, that's kind of interesting. You know, uh, what an accurate representation of what we see happen here in Kentucky is the invalidation starts even in our childhood. Uh, I was a very, I, I was a very anxious teenager. <laughs> very anxious and, and I had PTSD obviously but no one knew that because we couldn't even call it anxiety because there's this whole like what do you have to be anxious about you have food and water and I'm like listen have you been to a high school lately they're not awesome but um that's neither here nor there so I kind of want to explain to folks because I, I think we have a history of invalidating ourselves and what's actually going on I, I think, you know, we think we have to pretend like it's not happening in order to survive. So let's rock and roll. Let's, let's kind of look at this. Now, I want to say this is, this episode is going to be coming out at a very interesting point in time because the DSM 5TR just came out. I do not have my hands on a new copy. Um, you can smack my hand for being a bad therapist. That's fine. Uh, so this is this is the PTSD DSM-5 diagnosis. Let me first explain what uh, the DSM is. It's the uh, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and you know, we're we're on edition five. So instead of me using my not so amazingly clinical language to describe what the DSM is, I. I Psychiatry.org describes it as uh, the DSM is the handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world as the authoritative guide to the diagnosis of mental disorders, 
DSM contains descriptions, symptoms, and other criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. And to keep in mind, you know, we also have the ICD-10. And the ICD-10, it's a, it's like the, in, it's uh what is it? It's like international classification of diseases. We're currently on ICD-10, which is like the 10th revision of the ICD. And that's, that's what we use internationally. And you'll actually find in some places, um, from my understanding, the ICD-10 will recognize things that perhaps here in the U.S. we don't, especially when it comes to certain aspects of trauma. You know, the United States hasn't been around very long compared to a lot of other regions of the world that have experienced, not that, wait, 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 I need to be careful. Not that the U.S. has not witnessed its own versions of genocide. It's just the genocide that has happened here in the U.S. usually isn't happening to the majority uh, but that's a whole different topic for a different time. Um, so, so, you know, the ICD-10 sometimes looks at trauma a little bit differently. I think they are a little bit more encompassing than probably what we are here, but that's neither here nor there. We're going to jump into now looking at, uh, the PTSD diagnosis as described by the DSM-5. Let's dive in. Very first thing is criterion A which means a stressor has to have happened. You have to have one of the following. Okay. First and foremost, the person, AKA the client, uh, was exposed to one of the following death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury or actual or threatened sexual violence in the following ways, either by direct exposure mean direct what you know directly it happening to them uh two witnessing the trauma watching it happen to someone else three learning that a relative or close friend was exposed to a trauma four indirect exposure to aversive details of the trauma usually in the course of professional duties including first responders police officers medics etc so that was just criterion A. Let's break what even we just said down. So a part of A, I, a lot of people will say, well, I've never been afraid of death or threatened death or, or actual or threatened serious injury or actual or threatened sexual violence in the following ways. Okay. Uh, let's break down what that looks like. That, that when it says actual or threatened now, I'm an LCSW in south-central Kentucky, westernish area, and uh, when I was in school, we were using the DSM-4TR to diagnose, and there may be someone out there who wants to argue with me on my opinion and my clinical justification for PTSD diagnosis, and that is totally okay. So, I think of when we're talking here about actual or threatened you know, that threatened component can be that perception of it's happening. So, for instance, if we were to talk about a child who they know that their parent, when they get upset or angry, tends to restrict food. Or perhaps uh, the parent says they're going out again. And the parent has a history of going on a three-day binge with drugs and alcohol and won't be home to restock the pantries to that child that may very well feel like threatened serious injury or fear of that threatened serious injury 
it is a possibility. Okay, so so I think of a lot of times we see uh, those little brains of a seven or eight year old. And if your prefrontal cortex, you know that prefrontal lobe of your noggin, it's not completely developed till you're age twenty five. So. To an eight-year-old, having dinner taken away enough times may feel like threatened serious injury to their amygdala. I do believe that. So I, I, I think that's, that's something to contemplate. I, I think people get really hung up on trauma is one event. And the reality is it can be a bunch of little itty-bitty tiny events that occur all the time. Okay. Uh, poverty can be actual or threatened serious injury. Poverty can prevent um, kids getting to go to the doctor. Uh, I think Medicaid is so awesome. I'm so excited so many people get to use that program. And the services that they receive at the doctor can be at low cost or sometimes at no cost to the client. That's great. Unfortunately, what we do see is Medicaid usually pays less to medical providers. I have seen people... Uh, no doctor would take them as a Medicaid client, but all of a sudden, if they wanted to pay in cash, the doctor was more than happy to get them in that day. And that is a reality. Um, so actual or threatened serious injury, I think under the thought, you know, not being able to get adequate medical care due to poverty, uh, I think it could go on and on and on. And I think especially bullying. Um, we want to talk about too, people think, I, I hear this and I have to be mindful of myself too when I say this, like, oh, well, it was just emotional abuse. All right, guys, let's quit joking and kidding ourselves because emotional abuse can feel like death. If it's, I don't meet your demands or if I don't clean the house in a very specific way and you get angry with me. And you go to the silent treatment and pull some narcissistic stuff. And my little kid brain doesn't know when that emotional abuse is going to end. Yeah, that can feel very real. Please keep in mind, like, we have not evolved that far from being cave people. And when we were cave people, you couldn't piss. Well, I mean, you could, but you really didn't want to piss off the other people you were sharing your cave with. You know, because if you piss off the people you're sharing your cave with, they may kick you out and you may not have enough berries and nuts collected to survive the winter or there may be fear of saber-toothed tigers. So it's very ingrained in our skulls, like our amygdalas, that little thing in the back of your noggin that has that fight, flight, freeze response, wants us to uh, be liked, to hopefully avoid dying in the winter. So, silent treatments can feel like threatening serious injury to a little kid. And shit, to some of us, it does as an adult. So, some people may want to argue with me on that, and that's okay. Um, but I think, too, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, we may have a duck on our hands. So, um, going on direct exposure to this. So, so, death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence. So direct exposure, it actually happened to you. Okay. Uh, next is witnessing the trauma. If you witnessed a car accident, if you witnessed your parent being abused, that's another thing I hear. Like, well, my stepdad never beat me, but I watched him beat my, my, um, my parent. 
well, yeah, okay, that's that's witnessing the trauma, and that's still traumatizing. Uh, next, learning that a relative or a close friend was exposed to a trauma. So finding out your kid was sexually abused. Finding out that uh, your loved one died in a very horrific way. Uh, let's see. Indirect exposure to aversive details of the trauma, usually in the course of professional duties. Okay, man. If you, uh, there's so much I could say on that. But I, uh, I worked at a psych hospital off and on from ages of 21 to 30. In some type of capacity, I was I either was a, a, a mental health associate there, or I um, I was a therapist or a clinical intern, and watching kids have to be put in restraints to keep their, them safe or other people in the hospital safe within itself was at time traumatizing. These kids screaming for help, but their mental health symptoms are so exasperated that they are seriously an injure or fixing to injure themselves or, or they're injuring someone else on the unit or they're trying to fight or they've got a pencil and they're trying to stab a staff member's eye out. Or I remember one time, you know, watching a gigantic, like, I, I don't know, they looked huge. It was like a a big magnet that kept the, the doors closed. Like this kid took it and they chucked it at a nurse's head. And like, like just that, like, you know, even bring that up now, I can feel <laughs> my heart's racing. So that's criterion A. So according to the DSM-5, you have to meet at least one of those to move on to criterion B. So uh, moving on to criterion B now intrusion symptoms now you have to have one of the following uh, the traumatic event is persistently re-experienced in the following of ways unwanted upsetting memories two nightmares three flashbacks four emotional distress after exposure to traumatic reminders um, and then last, physical reactivity after exposure to traumatic reminders. Now, let's go through each single one of those. Um, by the way, folks, I really should have put a disclaimer. This episode is not intended for you to diagnose yourself. But I do hope it causes you to question. If you've ever doubted, like, may I don't think I have trauma. But other people have said, uh, you, you might, dude. You meet a lot of the symptoms. I want you to, to just kind of listen to this with an open mind of maybe something for you to go talk to your medical providers about or your mental health providers about. I, I like the little caveat of, I am a therapist, but I am probably not your therapist. So... <laughs> Um, this is not meant to be diagnosing via a podcast episode, just purely for education and entertainment purposes. Um, I don't know how entertaining talking about PTSD is. I think I'm mimicking what I've heard from other podcasts that are mental health related. Either way. Okay. So we're on criterion B, intrusion symptoms. One is required. Uh, so I'm one of upsetting memories. Like, okay, you're sitting around and someone says something about, hey, do you remember... Uh, that old bridge back home. And then, boom, all of a sudden, you're reminded of when 
you had a traumatic memory associated with a bridge. So your brain navigates back to that trauma memory. Uh, nightmares, I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. And guys, like, for my PTSD folks, it kind of cracks me up because even I didn't know, like, nightmares aren't, like, usual past childhood. <laughs> like, it's, like, a super low number. Please don't quote me on this. Google it yourself. But I want to say it's, like, only 10% of the adult population or less has nightmares on a regular basis. Um, so that's fun. <laughs> uh, flashbacks, you know, all of a sudden you're in the middle of doing whatever you're doing and you either somatically or mentally, I uh, get pulled back into a memory for a second. Almost like some weird, like trauma based deja vu. All right, and then we have emotional distress. So I'm going to lump these together. It's either emotional distress and or physical reactivity after exposure to a traumatic reminder. So this is a fun way of saying like, oh, um, ooh, I've got a great example. Uh, the last place I was working at, lovely, lovely woman who manages the office. Names, her name's Tammy. She's a super great lady. And uh, she said, hey, so-and-so wasn't put on your billing sheet. And you wrote a note for them. And I interpreted that, my trauma brain interpreted that into, Tammy doesn't believe me. Tammy thinks I'm lying. So that's that emotional distress. Tammy thinks I'm lying and that I didn't do this. Tammy never said those things. No, but my trauma brain automatically went there. It's because it's, it's exposure to a history of being told that I'm a liar. Because I've suffered from extreme gaslighting in the past. And, and the physical reactivity was I started to become panicked. I wanted to cry um, because my brain very quickly went to Tammy thinks I'm lying and that I'm trying to do Medicaid fraud or something like that. No one ever said those words, but my fun brain automatically went there. Um, so in that physical reactivity, if you've never heard of the word somatic symptoms related to PTSD or that phrase, I guess I should have said, that is something to consider. So criterion B says you just need one of those following <laughs> to move on to round C, uh, criterion C avoidance. And one of the following is required. And there's just two here. It's a, it's around avoidance, avoidance of trauma related stimuli after the trauma in the following ways. One trauma related thoughts or feelings Two, trauma-related external reminders. I feel like that's pretty straightforward there. Um, so you're trying to avoid feelings of powerlessness. The, I'm just using myself as an example. These aren't exactly, but like trying to avoid being put in situations where I don't feel, feel like I'm in power um, or in control. Uh, I don't. There, there's... I could... There, there's a reason why uh, I never allowed anyone to take on a majority of the work in the group projects I was in, ever. Because I didn't want to feel like... I, the, the feeling of I have to rely on someone else for my success um, also makes me want to throw up. So <laughs> that's an example of some criteria and see, just avoid it. Like if I just don't even do it, then I don't have to worry. If I, if, if I don't give someone a chance to help, then they can't let me down. <laughs> All right, let's move on to criterion D. Um, now two are required in this category. 
So it's negative alterations in cognitions and mood. Whew, let's um, let's take that language and put it into some more language. Those who aren't in this field can maybe kind of understand negative changes in my thoughts and mood. Okay, so it goes on to say. Negative thoughts or feelings that began or worsened after the trauma in the following ways. You need two of these, okay? One, inability to recall key features of the trauma. Uh, we'll just break it down as we go. That, that's really common. People will tell me like, hey, so I had a really weird traumatic childhood, but I don't remember all of it. Well, yeah, because your brain was trying to dissociate pretty much probably the whole time and keep your brain away from your body so that it didn't have to experience that. Uh, two, overly negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself or the world. Uh, there's these like really hardcore negative cognitions, um, just negative beliefs about yourself. I have it with, um, I think it came up in an episode. I think it's a cup of cognitive distortions is when it came up where like, I just really, I, I don't believe that people genuinely all the time produce products for the betterment of our lives, but more so for the betterment of their pockets. And I think in that episode, I was really big about like, I don't know if air purifiers work, <laughs> which it's kind of funny. Like now that I've dug it and done research, like there is legitimacy behind air purifiers, but I was just like, well, you can't see the results. So you don't know if it's real or not. So it's probably fake. And I'm like, that's one step away from being um, a diehard conspiracy theorist so um but yeah so that's a, that's a whole lot of negative beliefs about the world like I can't trust people in the world to know what's best for me so um or negative thoughts about yourself how many times I've heard clients come in like I'm unlovable I'm not good enough and it's like well uh, are you around people who tend to convince everyone in their lives to feel that way because that'll be a part of it too all right so we were on Okay, number three, exaggerated blame of yourself or others for causing the trauma. The one I feel like I see the most, well, I, I guess I do see both of them, but I feel like I mostly see that exaggerated blame of the self. If I had just done blank correctly, they wouldn't have hurt me. That's not true. Like, I, I don't you can't control your abuser or neglector's response to you. Um, so if I just lost weight, he would have loved me more. Like, what is, no, uh, that was on him. Uh, negative affect, which just means like you present like just negative mood pretty often. Uh, decreased interest in activities, you know, things that you used to enjoy. Um, and I think this is a hard one for some of my clients because they're like, LOL, I've had trauma and PTSD since I was like four. I work in like very chron chronic PTSD folks, chronic and complex PTSD folks. That's like my, my preferred realm. Um, those folks, I think we speak the same language. Uh, so I, I work a lot more with that. And so they're, they don't know that they have a decreased interest in activities because they didn't know they, they could have an interest in activities. Um, <laughs> so feeling isolated, that's, that's another part of it. And I think for some folks who are like, I just feel kind of, well, we'll get into that in a second with different types of dissociation. But just that thought of like, 
I don't, I don't feel like anyone gets me or understands what I've been through. So, uh, next difficulty experiencing a positive affect. So it's like just different. You're having a hard time being able to present in a positive manner. So that was criterion D and they wanted you to meet two of those. Okay. Uh, let's move on to criterion E. Alterations in arousal and reactivity. Let's break down even those couple of words there. Alterations, so changes in arousal. And arousal is going to be, uh, I think of, how do we break down the word arousal? Like your brain constantly being on alert. Um, and someone may have a better definition for that. I may not be doing that one much justice. And then reactivity. So instead of just allowing things to exist, it's, I, we have this proneness to, I have to, if I see you're upset, I now have to react to it. I can't just, I just can't let you be upset because, which jokes on the trauma story because we don't let anyone do anything. People are in control of themselves. People can't, you know, we can't make someone else do anything. They can allow us to influence them and vice versa, but that's a whole, like, gosh, now I feel like I need to explain. Like, if someone, I, there are definitely, obviously, special circumstances, but for this example of no one can come up to me and make me do anything unless they're using physical harm or force or traumatic means, you know, if, if someone says something like, I think coffee with creamer in it is stupid and it's wasted calories okay if i choose to get upset to that statement that's my choice they didn't make me feel upset because of their decision about that like i'm choosing that i disagree with them that's one thing and how i react is totally that's they can't they can't make me react in an aggressive manner i hope all that made sense i'm worried i butchered that but we'll we'll keep moving on actually no we're not okay pause um, I think it's interesting people will in therapy world we try to say like please use I statements like I felt upset when you did dun to dun because we want you to own the things own your emotions because when we use language like you made me upset when you said you hated creamer and coffee uh well, that's giving all of the power to the other person and it makes it seem like you never had any control over your emotions in the first place, which is like the opposite of what we want to do in therapy. Um, there are definitely circumstances to exclude from that, including like poverty, neglect, um, uh, death by capitalism um, due to the increase in poverty and lack of uh, resources and food insecurity and abuse and trauma. But... I hope I made myself clear enough. We all know I have a huge fear of being misunderstood. And moving on to criterion E, alterations in arousal and reactivity. So uh, trauma-related arousal and reactivity that began or worsened after the trauma in the following ways. So this is another fun one because it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like people want to say what came first. Was it the depression or was it the anxiety or was it the ADHD symptoms or the anxiety? And I kind of want to say... It's neither chicken nor egg, y'all. It is probably a dinosaur. It was probably trauma. Um, that early childhood reactive attachment stuff, that early childhood neglect, 
not having enough healthy touch. You could go on and on and on. But either way, uh, irritability or aggression, risky or destructive behavior, hypervigilance, which let's talk about that one for a second. Hypervigilant is, imagine um, uh, the dog who constantly stares at the window waiting for the next thing to bark at. Now that's your brain. You're constantly looking for the next thing to go bad in order to protect yourself when the bad thing may or may not happen. The reality is you can't control anything and uncertainty is our friend and not our enemy. But that's a whole different episode. Next, heightened startle reaction. Um, I call it spooking real easy. People used to make fun of me. I can't do haunted houses to save my life. I do not find it fun to get my PTSD a tripping and a rolling around fall. Do not find it as fun. Um, let's see. Difficulty concentrating. This is where we'll also see sometimes, I feel like, PTSD and ADHD. Uh, there's some misdiagnosing maybe that's going on in early childhood. And recent research is coming out and saying that uh, ADHD and autism, both of those impact the same part of the brain that early childhood PTSD does. It's your amygdala. Again, that's like a whole other combo, but, uh, and then difficulty sleeping. And I think that's sometimes where we see a misdiagnosis of bipolar happen. I know that was my story. Um, I got kidnapped by a fake Uber and I come back home after being held at knife point and had all my money taken from me. And, um, all of a sudden I couldn't sleep. But guess what? When you can't sleep, you have some really wonky behaviors that happened, which included me being uh, having what appeared to be mania. So I got misdiagnosed as bipolar for a really long time. I'm not encouraging anyone to go off their bipolar medicine, but I do encourage you to be curious about how trauma may or may not impact some of your symptoms. Criterion F, uh, the duration the symptoms have to have lasted for longer than one month. And while we're on that, there's a delayed specification that um, full diagnostic criteria for this diagnosis cannot be met until at least six months after the trauma. Although onset of symptoms may occur immediately. So let's say, let's use the tornado, for example, here in Bowling Green. Um, you may have and I think of myself included in this list you may have started having symptoms of PTSD as soon as the tornado happens but to have a PTSD diagnosis it has to be at least six months after the trauma occurred okay so um duration okay criterion g Functional significance. This is required. Um, symptoms create distress or functional impairment, such as social or occupational. People want to um, say, well, I don't think it affects my life. I think of the little minute ways that if you really were to pay attention and concentrate. I have to question when I go out of my way to be overly nice to some people when I feel like maybe I have hurt their feelings. Like if, if I like, so next thing I know, I'm trying to manipulate my friendships into not being mad at me because someone being mad at me almost feels like I'm going to die. 
if you can relate to that, that's, that's how my trauma shows up in trying to be manipulative and control the situation, which therefore does impact my social relationships or even my work relationships. Like I think of the small puppy when they go to the dog park and the big 150 pound floof is running up to this 20 pound puppy and the puppy instantly falls on its back and starts wiggling its tail and like doing a little whimper. That's its survival mechanism telling it to be overly nice right now in order to survive this interaction. Guess what folks? Normal people like don't do that and they, and I joke, I don't know of normal people, but the theoretical normal person that's not really existing would just have healthy boundaries and, and whatnot. Not that they can't exist. I just, I don't feel like I see very many of them. And maybe that's my negative worldview, but we'll just keep going here. Special significant. Okay. Criterion H. Symptoms are not due to medication, substance abuse, or other illnesses. Um, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, so, so that was all of the criteria. Um, PTSD diagnosis. Guys, I'm not telling you anything you couldn't find from like a YouTube video or, or your own research with maybe the help of a a psych graduate student friend, uh, if you got one of those in your life. Um, that the other caveat to this, I would like to end on is there are two specifications, uh, that you can attach to this diagnosis. And this is where I don't know as if, uh, everyone understands these. So there's two things here. It's called depersonalization and derealization. And they're both types of dissociations, dissociative stuff, so to speak. So depersonalization is the experience of being an outside observer of or detached from oneself, like in regards to the trauma. Like you don't remember the trauma happening to you, but you almost witnessed it like as an outsider. I see that happen a lot in EMDR when I ask people to pull up the image. They're like, I can see it happening to me, but I don't perceive it me, it being me that it's happening to. Another portion here is derealization. Um, and it's the experience of unreality, distant or distortion, like things are not real. Um, and that's like, um, that's like almost like denying the trauma or, or like the, if here's, oh gosh, this is such an interesting case. Um, I have a client who like, so in EMDR, I need to do a whole episode on EMDR, but, uh, EMDR at the end, towards the end of a, a full stages of, of the EMDR process, you move on to installation of the positive cognition, which is a funny way of saying we're going to install in your brain through bilateral stimulation, the belief that blank, whatever the positive belief is. And usually people use things like I am a good person or it wasn't my fault or I am safe now, which are also cool. But if your brain doesn't believe those to be real, your brain will not install them. And derealization, I think we see a lot of that where people like their brains and bodies feel like it's safer to believe that the abuse that they happened to them happened for a reason rather than for no reason because their brains and bodies are not ready to accept the gravity of how the abuse happened to them. So let's say, for example, a young gay man grew up in uh, southern Kentucky and their family their entire life told them that you know, gay people are terrible. Well, now they have this negative belief. I am terrible. We go in to desensitize it. They get to a point where they agree. Yes, it is true that I am not terrible. 
But when we go to install that belief, I'm a good person, like they can't. Because for their body and brain to accept that they are a good person would mean that they now have to acknowledge that they were raised by people who either covertly or, or overtly basically told them they'll be ultimately abandoned by this higher power and their families. They all get to go off to heaven and they'll have to burn in hell for being gay. And so their brains just won't, they, they won't install it. And it, it's, it's so sad. So like sometimes we have to settle on like things like I'm an okay person. Like their brain and body will accept that, but not that they're a good person. Um, until they do more work because that is possible. But I just uh, wanted to share this because I keep running into instances where people are like, well, like, I, I, like I've had anxiety, but it's not really trauma. And, and I want to explain to you, like, you, we can go into the long, long, long discussion of, like, the difference between big T trauma and little T trauma. So a lot of people beat themselves up because they think they needed big T trauma to for it to be real trauma. So big T trauma in the literature and why they call it big T versus little T is because to differentiate it in literature, what type of trauma they're talking about when they say big T, it's they'll capitalize the T in front of the word trauma and little T it's just everything's lowercase. Okay. So uh, big T trauma is like nine 11, uh, witnessing your family pass away in a car accident uh, washing your house burn down. Like they're things that people would all like, we all socially agree. Like, Oh yeah, that's, that, that is traumatic. Oh yeah, that, that, that is traumatic. And then little T trauma, I think is more like, like I, I'm still not super satisfied with how the literature describes it. Cause I feel like even sometimes the literature is kind of diminishing about how traumatic it is, but people, you know, I remember, Ooh, I remember distinctly, uh, being, I think I was like I was a teenager and I was working my first job and, um, a family member, a distant family member, I was complaining about like, you know, something that had happened to me and they were like, well, you didn't have it nearly as bad as we did growing up. So you should just get over it. And, and that led to a catalyst of me invalidating myself for a very long time. Like, well, our mother was a lot worse than, than your parents' situation, so you should just get over it. And made me think that maybe my story didn't have enough weight. But it's like things like uh, little T trauma, um, growing a close connection to the farm animals on the farm, and then not knowing that, you know, at dinner that night you're eating your pet goat. Like, that's... You know, to maybe an adult, they wouldn't see that as trauma. But to a nine-year-old, it very much can be. Uh, little T trauma, um, going to church every Sunday and hearing about how you're going to burn in hell. Um, because you're queer or because you don't believe and you're just going along to make mom and dad happy. Or, or uh, going to um, your grandparents house on the weekend where grandpa is an alcoholic and um or grandma beats the hell out of everybody and you kind of low-key witness it in the background it maybe didn't happen to you but so those things are still trauma and we want to call them little t trauma and if you could i think of uh, i'm such a visual 
teacher, talker, speaker. It's hard to do podcasts because you can't see my hands and they're going all over the place. Um, but think of big T trauma as like the person's walking along, walking along, walking along, and then boom, the big thing happens. And people will all agree, oh, yep, that, that was traumatizing. And then little T trauma is like a little bit every day. It's like, oh, uh, the parent said we don't have enough money to let me join baseball this year. So I have to figure out how to tell my friends that I'm not going to get to be on the team. Oh, and then six months later, uh, you know, my pet gets uh, ran over, but we don't have enough money to take it to the vet. And so I'm reminded about how much poverty is hurting us. And then we have to put down my pet in the backyard. And then, and then oh, Christmas comes along and uh, uh, mom runs off to go on a on a drug induced binger and and we don't see her and and like it's enough of those every so often that like your amygdala gets tampered with it's like a ding 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 like that ringtone from the 90s commercials that you could pay for. do you remember paying for ringtones god i'm getting old um point is like uh, that that adds up if there was no where to go let that steam out so, you know, science is still coming up with, like, hey, little T trauma can, like, be just as harmful as big T, if not more. You know, I was talking to my dad about this this morning, actually, because um, I love talking to my dad, for one. He's a really awesome person. And uh, we were talking about, <laughs> this is just good old Friday the 13th before work conversations we were talking about death rates of people from high intense fields of work and he was talking about the factory he worked at and the factory he worked at no one could stay because it was like 12 hour shifts like he went in it was 3 a.m to 3 p.m monday through friday and sometimes saturday and he worked at that same factory i want to say it was almost 40 years and he said, yeah, people would call it the carpenter death. I was like, what? Because <laughs> that, that was the name of the factory he worked at. It was Carpenters. And it was in uh, Russellville, Kentucky. And he said, yeah, because shortly after people retired, two to three years after they retired, they would die. And like, oh, yeah, because that's, you know, all the years of being in that factory, loud noises. So you're hypervigilant, especially if you had childhood trauma as is. Add in the hypervigilance, you know, there's too many noises. It's overwhelming. There's a heightened startle reaction. I remember while he was working there, this kid I went to school with got his whole arm chopped off while he was working there. Like, like <laughs> irritability and aggression, you know, uh, like maybe... Maybe people aren't getting along, difficulty sleeping because the hours are so rough on the body, feeling isolated from one another. That can go back into Karl's Marx theory of like factories are maybe not the most awesome things in the entire world uh, for the human body. Maybe for the society. Yeah, I'm going to argue that. Either way, point being, uh, yeah, so you have all this cortisol and all of these hormones that have built up in the body for years to prepare for that fight-flight response. And the amygdala just to then retire. And now your brain doesn't know what to do with all of that. There's no way to get it out of the body. Because you're not up on your feet and moving and walking around as vigorously as you were when you were at the factory. 
And so now your body doesn't know what to do with the anxious symptoms. And But yeah, he would say, yeah, you know, two to three years after people retired at Carpenter's, a lot of people were afraid to retire from this factory because they knew it was kind of like a death sentence. Good morning, Dad. <laughs> Let's talk about... <laughs> Let's talk about the... The mortality rate of factory workers. Fuck, y'all. Um, so, uh, mm, this has been a fun episode. I like, I like to educate because I think people, like, I would say, like, even my dad, I don't know as if my dad would acknowledge that he has PTSD. I, I don't even think he would call himself having anxiety. And his story is definitely not my story to tell. Um, But, oh, man. You know? It's there. It's there. And, And so many... That irritates me so much because a part of the problem with trauma work is convincing people they have trauma. You know, having someone come in and and start asking the questions, oh, no, 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 I don't have trauma. And then a couple months later, well, listen, it, it looks like a duck. You, you have hypervigilance and, and it, it quacks like a duck, dude. You've, you've got the flashbacks and the nightmares and, and you're trying to avoid certain people, places and things that remind you of trauma and, and you start over, like, it kind of looks like a duck, bro. It's quacking and it's looking like this duck. And they keep trying to convince me, oh, no, 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 This is certainly not a duck that you're seeing. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm sure. And then six months later, I just happened to accidentally ask the magical question after working with them there this long. Like, so how did, how did your family, when you were growing up, settle disputes? And it's like, oh, you know, like... Um, my my mom would pick me up by the scruff of my neck and throw me off the front porch outside and I'd be locked outside for eight hours at a time or sometimes overnight. And I'm like, oh, cool. So this is a duck. <laughs> you did a really good job because all of your abusers and, and neglectors tried to also convince you that this was not a duck we were talking about. But my good friend, this is most certainly a duck. So... Thanks for listening to my chaotic rambles this evening, this afternoon. One last note before we end. Guys, I want to know who you are. (laughs) So I use like a, I don't know if everybody has to use this or not. It's like an RSS um, website that tells me where everyone is kind of from. Um, the, The fifth highest geographical location of my listeners is from Brussels, like in Belgium. Who are you? (laughs) I don't even, I'm so honored that you're listening. It's cracking me up. Um, the Kentucky Trauma Therapist podcast is, has now been downloaded in uh, six, six different continents. Um, what in the world, y'all? I'm, it's like a huge honor. Like I never, I never thought something like this would ever happen where there'd be these people all over. And like I keep cracking up because I look and I'm like, who are you? I want to know who you are. Like there's some folks. It looks like to in between Wichita and Kingman in Kansas. I have a huge listening base there. Who are you? I want to know you. Um, it, it, uh, it looks like there's some folks uh, out in Washington. I'm in Seattle and uh, Atlanta. There's a, in Dallas. There's a big listening group. Um, Philadelphia, uh, Washington. 
uh, Detroit. We've got some folks in Detroit who are listening. Um, and then there's a bunch of Irish folks, which makes my heart really happy. Uh, I've heard that Irish folks um, love Dolly Parton, which is near my neck of the woods. I'm near, if we're talking globally, I guess. But um, I hear that y'all love her and all of the work she's done for trauma survivors. So I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, y'all make me so happy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And there was one more. Where are y'all? Is this is, and this is Japan. Oh, oh gosh. I hope I'm not mispronouncing. I'm not going to. Mm, Osaka? I think I'm saying that right. Osaka and Ki- Kyoto in Japan. Like, I want to hear from you folks. Oh my gosh. I'm in, I've got a couple of listeners in Australia. Who are you? <laughs> so, um, I would like to invite you. Like, I want to know who you are. And I want to, I want to hear from you. If there's a special, if there's something you specifically want, um, an episode to be about, like, if you're like, Hey, I want to hear more about blank. I want you to do a book review on the body keeps the score. I want like, like, listen, reach out to me. I'm really terrible at Facebook and social media stuff. I'm not great at the messaging portion, but I do have an email. Um, so you can find me on Instagram. It's K Y trauma therapist. Um, Facebook it's Casey Corsi, C A S E Y Corsi is C O U R S E Y L C S W E M D R. Uh, AKA the Kentucky trauma therapist. You can find me there on Facebook. Um, my email that I use now, I know I've probably, like I've, I've, I've been starting to not compartmentalize my emails as much. The best email to reach me at, it's going to be caseycorsylcsw at gmail.com. I'm going to put it in the description of this podcast episode. But um, seeing those little red dots on the map, it motivates me uh, because it lets me know that maybe through psychoeducation and, 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 Maybe doing this, it's it's getting to help, even if it's just one person out there, realize they're not alone. And maybe you can educate someone and let them know, hey, you're also not alone. Actually, there's, there's quite a few of us. And I'm looking at it literally on a map. I have it pulled up right now. Y'all are everywhere. Kansas and Washington and New York and Atlanta and Texas and Florida and Virginia is now popping up. <laughs> This is y'all to know. I love y'all. Thank you. I don't know you yet. I hope I get to one day. And Brussels. Who are you? Who are y'all in Brussels? Like, I want to know about you. <laughs> y'all take care. Y'all have a great um, Friday the 13th, wherever you are in the world right now. Um, so much love. So, so much love. Take care.